Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Deborah Council. Deborah is the Chief Legal Officer, Company Secretary, and part of the Executive Leadership Team at Blue Scope Steel. Now, let me kick off by saying this. There are not too many advantages in getting older, but one is that sometimes you get the opportunity to reconnect with people that you'd connected with very early on in your career and be super impressed with how far they've come. And that's the case here with Deborah. Some time ago, I don't want to count the decades, but um, you'll hear that Deborah and I were on the opposite sides of the bar table in a case. That's how we first met. We've reconnected many years later and her story is a super impressive one. The way I describe it, it's a story of grit, determination, resilience. And what I love about it, it's a path less traveled. Now, I'm not going to say much more because it's a fascinating story and I'm not going to spoil the uh, spoiler surprises. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Deborah Council, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Now, Deborah, you're currently the Chief Legal Officer, Company Secretary and member of the Executive Leadership Team at Blue Scope Steel. And for anyone that's been living under a rock, Blue Scope Steel, of course, one of the world's leading steel product uh, of steel producers or producers of steel products. But we have some history, don't we, Deborah? And it goes back to the early 90s. And not too many people can actually say that now, can they? So we were actually on the opposite sides of a table in what was then called the Tri-Continental Royal Commission. Yes. You remember that? Well, in fact, you reminded me of that when I first... Unforgettable. Unforgettable. <laughs> yes. For all the reasons. Yeah. yeah. And again, for those listeners that know nothing about that, that was the a Royal Commission to the collapse, basically, of uh, Tricontinental, which was a subsidiary of the State Bank of Victoria at that time. But you've done a lot since then. Deborah, I'm going to call out just some of the highlights, and then I'm going to ask you a little bit about the Deborah, Deborah Council story. So you've spent some time... At DLA Piper, you were a partner there for some years. Great firm. I was a partner there also for, for some years. Uh, you've spent some time with them in Vietnam. You had, I think, four years in Hanoi. You spent some time with Clifford Chance, four years in Paris, and also some time at Allen's Linklater's. Tell us a little bit about the Deborah Council story before you actually took, take on your, your, your current position as the Chief Legal Officer at Blue Scope Steel. Okay. Um, I'll try and give you the short version and that's... I love a long version, that's fine. <laughs> oh, this you be careful what yeah. you wish for. This is the, um, the post-tricontinental story. Yep. As you know, we spent a lot of time sitting at that bar table and when it was all over, it was all over very quickly. Yep. And then, of course, I didn't have a whole lot to do. And the partner I worked for on that matter had sponsored it. It's quite a good story, actually, but I'll give you the short version. He had sponsored a Vietnamese boat person who had come out of South Vietnam, as it then was, and was a lawyer and was in the South Vietnamese Navy and therefore escaped at the end of the war when the communist government took over Vietnam. And he ended up meeting Bill McGuinness, who I worked with at the time, I think in Swan Street, Richmond, where Bill lived in one of the Vietnamese bakeries and Bill helped him through university, then brought him to the firm as a 
paralegal and then when Trico finished, decided to set up an office in Vietnam with him. Yep. And so because I had nothing more meaningful to do at that point and had proven myself an able assistant, I went along for You went along. And in typical Australian lawyer style, thought, yeah, overseas, I can, I can do that, why not? Yep, yep. My family was freaking out. They still had US embargo in place in Vietnam. We did have to ship in the toilet paper right? in the suitcases. Yep. And we did even, and Bill McGuinness loves to tell this story, also ship in the kitchen sink when we were at the office. <laughs> Not kidding so about everything that. including the kitchen sink, love that. The kitchen yep. sink was shipped into Vietnam. And this was before all the, you know, holiday resorts and beaches and... Right. Tourist visas. I mean, you couldn't even get a visa to get in right. there. And I spent the first meeting I went to, the door opened and closed all morning and people kept peering in. And I did think, wow, they have a lot of bookings for this meeting room. And then the Vietnamese ministry official who we were meeting with apologised for all these people sticking their faces in the door because they had never seen white, a white I, woman I before. knew you were going to say that. How about that? There you go. And here's me thinking the meeting was <laughs> like meeting room was overbooked. And then he did make a very politically incorrect comment about other than the white Russian women who have been That's a different that story. That is a different story. Not, for, not yeah. for this podcast, perhaps another. <laughs> no, not for this podcast at all. <laughs> and um, I moved over there yep. and I did have a few hesitations about it and I ended up staying five years and I had to be kind of dragged out of there. It was a very formative time. Not easy, but, you know, not a Hong Kong or a Singapore. You only yep. got people over there who really wanted to make a difference and who were up for a bit of hardship as part of the um, the deal. It was a, a well, tough place. Tell me really more about place. that because I love that because the formative times and points in life are never the easy ones, right? So I'd love to not, learn a bit more about yeah. that and what was it. I mean, I can imagine certainly the cultural challenge would have been huge. T tell me about that. I think the time... One, being a woman, two, being white, three, being a lawyer, yep. four, being in the communist capital of the country, which is still really wary of any foreign yep. involvement or intervention for good reason, but also trying to get foreign investment in the door and manage that in a really very communist, very centralised way was incredibly challenging. But what it did mean, I think, was that other than your colleagues, you really didn't have a lot of people to rely upon. And I often, I mean, I laugh about it now, but I didn't laugh about it at the time. And I often tell the story about how I fell down this hole one day. And it was, I was literally walking along the street and all the footpaths were really sort of dodgy and broken. Yep. And, you know, there was a massive need for infrastructure yep. at this point. And someone had reconstructed a footpath. So it looked like it was a footpath, but it wasn't a footpath. It was just broken bits of concrete put back together. And, of course, I walked on top of it and I fell down into this hole, into a drain, basically. And my head was visible, but the rest of me was not. And after I got over the shock of this event, I looked around and there was literally like a cafe, a, a Vietnamese street cafe, where they were all sitting on the, on the street drinking coffee. And I turned around waiting for someone to come over and help me because yeah. they'd all seen me fall down this hole. And they just all kept drinking their coffee. And then I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I started feeling a bit exposed. <laughs> I was like, you know, just waving and trying to get some attention. And no one was interested in helping me. And then the police showed up and, and they were just patrolling. And I called out to them 
and they were not going to help me either and they called these guys at the cafe to get off their backsides and come and help me and finally under much yeah. persuasion they pulled yeah. me out of the yeah. hole right and I think I must have been down there for about 15-20 minutes and and I got home and I was really yeah. shocked by that you know just that complete lack of of civil kind of yep. duty almost to look after yeah. other people and then I realised that they were actually all really scared of having anything to do with a foreigner and being yep. seen with me. And then I really felt isolated. And that was sort of a pretty consistent theme. I mean, there were a lot of interesting moments, including another one with a sugarcane seller who stole all my electricity and, you know, wouldn't give up. And then I attempted to, it's a long story, but attempted to kind of block him from using my footpath in order to get rid of the music that he was playing early in the morning on my electricity. And at the end of all of this, I had no electricity. I was just paying for his stall and his music. And because I did park the car to stop him from setting up in the morning, we both ended up at the police station wow. that night. And and I did again. And, you know, in between them telling me that this guy just got out of prison, they're interviewing me as to how I'd managed to cause this <laughs> disturbance. And then, <laughs> and then I get home and this buddy journalist from the Australian rings me up and wants to know what's been happening down at, you know, the police station. And I was thinking, oh, God, they're going to put me in the paper and the firm's going to be mortified. And, you know, and you, you're just continually, I think, feeling that you're a bit on your own. And I got very sick as well. And so, so what is keeping you there at, the, at this point? Because it, it's funny, when I've had similar discussions, people talk about... In those early stages, they just say to themselves, what have I done? Why? Mm. What am I doing here? Get me out of here. And, and then they get through some really difficult times. And But by the time that, that their time is finished, they talk about it as part, you know, some of the most formative years they've ever had. So what's keeping you there mm. when it's getting really hard? Is it, I just don't want to give up? I, I don't want to be seen yeah, to be given that- up? Because, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's yep. not wanting to give up. I'm, I, the moment I had that reckoning, I got really sick and I nearly died. Like, I was very, very wow. sick. And uh, at that point, and I, they couldn't airlift me and it was quite a bizarre story as it turned out. And I ended up in a French hospital in Ho Chi Minh City where they were teaching Vietnamese surgeons how to perform open-heart surgery on Vietnamese children. So it was a really lovely hospital but very challenging yep. for resources. They had white rabbits running around, and I remember that in the hallucinations because that's what they used to practice the surgery oh, on. And and I did lie there thinking that I was going to die, and and I didn't want to tell my parents because I knew they would worry. And the amount of support that I got from the Australian community was phenomenal. Like anyone from Hanoi who was in Saigon dropped by the hospital to see me, that you know, the embassy sent people around to bring me things that I couldn't get hold of there. And the partners from Australia were ringing me every night to make sure I was okay. And I think, you know, I just felt at that point, and if there was ever a point that I was going to give up and go home, it was then, because I was really, really ill. I think at that point, I understood after spending actually every night with the French doctor who ran that hospital and was on his own as well, and we actually, there was a moment when he said, what brought you here? And I, I said, well, I came here because, you know, I was asked to and I saw an opportunity to actually create history by helping this country open up and, and 
bring investment in and, and really change people's lives. And and he said, I said, why did you come here? And he said, I still remember it. He said, because Professor Carpentier, who was the, the leading surgeon in France on these things, yep. asked me to. And, you know, this guy was so inspirational to, to me, I would have gone anywhere. And, and I did... I did think to myself, wow, you meet some really yep. special people here. And I, I, I didn't want to give up because I thought that it was a really unique opportunity to really do something and really achieve something. And at that point, I didn't have children or anything. I mean, if you I had children and things, it would have been a yep. different story. Yeah. And, yeah. and Deborah, it was just me. so by the, yeah. the end of your time in Hanoi, what, what did you learn about yourself and that you know you, uh, still remains with you today. You know, what is it that was so formative? I mean, I, clearly difficult, but what is it about yourself that you learned? I think the resilience piece. I, I would have yeah. thought that I would have been the last person to be able to manage that. Awesome. To be honest, the, yep. the kind of living hardship, and it was a really, I mean, it was a really hard place to live. Yep. And then the, you know, the cultural differences and difficulties um, that we've just talked about, and being a foreigner and what that meant, and. Yep. And then, you know, the, the illness and the just the day-to-day. -day. I mean, we, we had, by the end of, by the end of, by the time I left, we had four generators on the roof that had all blown up, right? And all of them had blown up because all of them at some point hadn't been fed the petrol. And every day yep. there'd be a brownout or a blackout and you'd lose every yep. single thing that you'd just typed on your computer for the day's work yep. and there'd be all this screaming on the stairs about whose fault it was that the generator hadn't been filled and I remember I just kept thinking that that roof is going to collapse right that there's no way they can get another one of those things up there and <laughs> and you'd be sitting there in the heat and in the dust and in the I mean it, you know it was really yep. not easy and I think what I learned out of it was and I was on my own for a large part of it yep. was that I was much more resilient, self-sufficient and able thought. to kind of manage any crisis. And there were a few, I mean, there were quite a few client crises as well. And, you know, some involving, you know, sort of business conduct issues, ethics, all of that sort of stuff, which was really evolving yep. over there. And, you know, a lot of it was pretty big decision making. And, you know, I mean, again, yep. I, I would have found, I would have thought beforehand that I'd be too stressed to advise kind of um, rationally in that situation, but it just forced you to grow really, really quickly. Yeah. It is amazing what those kind of circumstances, just difficult mm. circumstances, what they teach you about yourself, what they bring out. Is there also a bit of, after that period, Deborah, is there a bit of, I can actually do anything? Yeah. 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 And that's the bit I love the most. The, you know what? I can yeah. do anything is is such, I think, a, whether it's a career accelerant or just let just lets you take on anything in, un, in an unfazed fashion, that's to me like a superpower. Yeah. No, I agree. And no. just the whole, you know, professionally, I was happy to have a crack at anything. I mean, you can't. Do, yep. You become a, a generalist in everything and a specialist of nothing when you do those sort of posts because you're required yep. to do whatever comes in the door. But that meant I was never scared of trying a new area of the law yep. and. And pretty good at you know kind of the fake it till you make it kind of thing too. Yep. And and I think just much more at ease with with meeting people and you know um, stakeholder relationships and all of those sort and public speaking and all that stuff that before I I was never really scared of it but I didn't enjoy it and after, yep. I mean by the time I left there I think that from memory I was head of the business council and that was you know look they're always pretty interesting outfits business councils but 
you yep. know that that I think I think I must have been doing that when I came back to Australia and we you know welcomed the president of Vietnam and and I remember speaking at the yep. dinner and thinking god you know five years ago I could never have done this in years and now it's not bothering me at all yeah. You spent a bit of time in Paris too. Mm-hmm. Anything formative about those years, of course, other than meeting your husband, I assume. I met him in you... Melbourne, actually. Oh, you met him in Melbourne. There you go. Yeah, because of his job, yep. not mine. Right, right. Kicking and screaming, I have to say. People say, oh, you know, it must have been easy compared to Hanoi, and I actually say no, it was twice as hard, to be honest. Why is that? Well, the Vietnamese tolerate you speaking English. The French right. found out quite quickly. That the French don't. Secondly, everything yeah. about Parisians is true. Very, very intolerant and not good with the, you know, politesse when it, it suits them. And and I was pregnant when I arrived there and I was pretty isolated for the first yep. year. I mean, I was either pregnant or with newborn twins and my language skills at that point were pretty basic. And Paris can feel very, and, you know, just that big city Thing that goes on can feel very hostile if you let it I think is the way to describe that so that first year was very challenging for me everything that I had gotten used to I didn't have anymore support yep. networks full-time job I was a partner in the firm when I moved to Paris I had to give that up I mean it was all pretty challenging yeah yep and, and so when you get to the end of your time in Paris what is it that you think you developed that you didn't have before because of your time there? Is it just more layers of resilience? Yeah, I think a lot more resilience again. And at that point, you know, I joined Clifford Chance after I'd been there for a year and I sort of, I I did purely project finance when I was with them and spent a lot of time in Africa and the Middle East. Really, I think professionally that was probably the most formative Yep. point of my career I worked with really clever people in that team and and some of the stuff we were doing in countries which normally just couldn't attract finance to save themselves yeah was very creative and really you know really difficult to pull off particularly I mean I, I the last deal I did before I left Paris was the Nord Stream gas pipeline I don't know if yep. you've heard, yeah I have yeah and you know that was with a bunch of investment banks insured by the Italian and German governments forming a, a Swiss entity to actually own the pipeline but financed by Gazprom under a long-term, you know, shipping arrangement. Yep. And you're dealing with, you know, 12 continental shelves and, you you know, it literally a pipeline that went through the Baltic and, and then the, the political issues were enormous yep. and they still are. You know, today. Well, certainly the 90s and 2000s project finance were Clipper Chance, great firm, of course. Uh, and certainly I was exposed in Asia and the Middle East at the time, too. So, yeah. really, some formative transactions, too, that were re- that were first offs yeah. and then started getting replicated. So, it was a pretty, uh, I do remember, it was a pretty uh, interesting and exciting time. So, yeah. from a professional's um, skill set point of yeah, view, really hugely formative. formative. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. really, I think, you know, not just the intellectual side of it, but the negotiation side of it when you're, yep. you know, doing kind of multi-cross-border deals involving different... Like I also did a deal in Saudi and as a woman that was... And, I that think would have been, and what, year, what year was that? What, that would have been... Was it early 2000s or...? No, that was later. That would have been in about 2009. 
Right. In fact, I'd spent some time in Saudi, well, flying in and out of Saudi, just at that time too, and I know exactly what it was like too. Yeah. Yeah, certainly just a real challenge. For yeah. You know, yeah. they didn't actually give women visas to go in there yeah. when I went in for the completion you, arrangements. You, and, yeah, it was... You probably remember the the um, the, the way to immigration. I did. Uh, it's, if you're a woman, you go... As, 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 as we all do, that, that that is one yeah one experience that, that certainly back then, I don't know what's not now, yeah. but certainly back then you didn't forget. So, Deborah, certainly up until 2014, I think, when you first joined Loose Scope Steel, your career was entirely with law firms. Tell me about how how well that prepared you, I, like, uh, I suppose, for, for then a, a position in-house. And then in 2017, when you, of course, took on the Chief Legal Officer role, what prepared you well as being part of law firm and what didn't prepare you so well? I think what prepared me well just because of the kind of fairly unusual career path I'd taken... Yeah. I was very well prepared on the the fact that as I was the general counsel of the corporate group when I joined, yep. and you have to know a lot about everything. I mean, you just yep. do. Right? So for me, that ranged from, you know, projects in construction to intellectual property to banking and finance to tax to, you know, and then there are all the multi-jurisdictions in which we operate. I mean, we have yep. an enormous operation in North America and a very large footprint across ASEAN and, and India and New Zealand as well. And, you know, to, to be able to adapt to different jurisdictions pretty quickly and easily, I think, again, because of that unusual path I'd taken, that prepared me really well. Yeah. I think the things that I was less prepared for were, I, I think it's a, just a, a completely different way that you present yourself and you operate. And when I, when I arrived there, I realised pretty quickly they were not interested. I mean, law firms, they... <laughs> Law firms, they do two things, right? They set yeah. you up so you're the expert and anyone who comes in the front door yep. realises they're paying an awful lot of money yep. to listen to you and you have to talk a lot and you have to really yep. sound like you know what you're talking about, right? And you're a, par you're a partner, you're... That you've got that yeah. that prestige, and there's an expectation about that. Yeah. yeah. And secondly, the more time you spend hunting down every rabbit down every burrow, the more money they. Yeah. Right. So they yeah. love it if you yeah. answer every single detail, and and I find that with all my lawyers who who have come in house in my team, they all yep. do it. They arrive. Yep. That's, that's the way we're trained, isn't and it? They, yeah. You know, no issue is too small to be investigated, right? And so, <laughs> and, and, uh, I, uh, I've got to quote that on the podcast somewhere. No issue too small no. to be investigated. That's got to be part of the show notes. <laughs> Until you take that to the business and they're like, hey, yeah. where the hell is she going with that? Yeah. And who cares, yeah. right? And, yeah. and I learned very quickly that you need to get to the point really quickly right because the glazing over happens really quickly to you need to actually offer a solution which i think good lawyers in private practice understand do. have to do yep. a lot of them don't they offer options but not the solution and thirdly they don't care about the the, yeah, the previous titles 20s, right yeah and if yeah. they think you're spending their money chasing 80 percent of crap when they yeah. just want to know about 20 percent yeah. uh, you will immediately not make friends. And finally, there's just this endless pressure to get to know the business, be able to stand in their shoes and to to actually 
take a view from their standing point rather than your own, which on legal issues can be quite tricky, right, in terms of getting everyone comfortable with, I think, two things. How good is good enough? And I think, secondly, you know, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And trying to get that, you know, you never get offered that luxury in private practice. It's always what can we do? Whereas to be in an organisation... Particularly, I think more, maybe more for listed organisations, I don't know, but to be able to have the right to apply that filter, well, I know we can do it, but I don't think we should, and I don't yeah. think we should for these reasons, is quite a luxury, I think, after you know years and years of private practice where you're not getting paid to do that. Yeah, and certainly just the risk, the whole risk tolerance equation, and you talked about the the glaze over the eyes very quickly. Uh, there was a discussion just last week they had where former general counsel became a CEO of a company and she talked about exact suddenly when she was speaking now to the external lawyers, there was lots of blah, 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 blah. And that, that's why she, because the, the eyes glazed over pretty yeah. quickly, she became completely focused on what the business needed and learned very quickly I think probably how she had might have sounded yeah. you know, when she was in the shoes of um, the ex, let's say the, the general counsel or even the external lawyer. Uh, so the glaze over the eyes point certainly resonates. The, and the pontification, you know, yeah. the ones that I've taken into the team who've come from big law firm, very established partners. Yeah, trying to get them off that ledge is can, <laughs> <laughs> and you can see the reaction the audience is having. Yeah. And, and, and you know that they're going to say, well, she or he was exactly what I expected, right? Yeah. Not interested in listening, too busy talking. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't understand the pressures we face from a business perspective if they yeah. fell off. So yeah. I think the other thing, when I moved into the chief legal officer role, which was really interesting to me, the company put me through a full exec uh, development program with a a guy in New York actually called Stephen Miles that a lot of the Australian ASX companies use. And he came back and he said, you know, it's interesting, I've just done a GC role like yours at at a top ASX company and you both came out exactly the same. And he said... And this, this guy was a partner in another big firm. And, and he said the two things that you got to do, one, understand what stakeholder, you know, matrix leadership looks like yep. and stakeholder engagement because in law firms as partners, all you do is operate your silo and you compete with the people next door. Correct. That's not how it works Correct. in yep. corporate. And secondly, you must move from advisor to owner. It's not enough for you to advise now. You've got to own this stuff. And... That means putting yourself out there and really taking a view rather than advising others what they can do and waiting for them to do it. And I found that incredibly empowering. Yeah, I think it would. Absolutely. Ownership is, I think, the one thing you miss. Yeah. And if you've got that kind of, whether you call it an entrepreneurial spirit, a business spirit, I I think it is the one thing that is sorely missing from, you know, whether you're in a law firm, management consultant, whatever it might be, that ownership piece yeah, is, uh, and I think it, that's the thing that attracts people into yeah. um, in-house from private practice. I think that's right. Yeah, I certainly think that's right. What were some of the early goals that you when, when you took off um, over the position as chief legal officer? What were some of the early goals that you set for yourself, and 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 how did you work them out? What what were, how did you work out what the screaming priorities were for you? I think to bring the team together globally. I mean, yep. the, the companies had a, a pretty difficult yeah. run till. You know, pretty much since I arrived, I like to say it's all due to me. Yeah. 
turned around our fortunes, but finally that was the case. Yep. So when I arrived, you know, there was there was no money. There had been no investment in a lot of things for a long time. Right. And we were operating on a very minimal budget in terms of in-house team. Yep. And in order to maintain total flexibility, which was absolutely necessary at the time, we were outsourcing a lot. Yep. And that way you can flex up and yep. down. And, and I could see that we were moving into a period of profitability that probably justified us moving more into a model which was increased resourcing in-house but fit for purpose resourcing. I think like a lot of in-house teams, we had a lot of M&A and corporate lawyers. We didn't have a single litigator and we were in the midst of a couple of very difficult pieces of litigation that have been going on forever and had effectively been managed by law firms. Mm. You know, and you you just can't... it's not manage them yep. and work. They need direction from you. And we didn't have, I mean, we, you know, we have a lot of, because of the type of business we are, we have a lot of interaction with the ACCC and we didn't have any competition specialists in-house. Yep. And likewise, we didn't have a specialist team of ethics and resources people and nor did we have a specialist IP team because we have, a, you know, a yep, lot of, of course. IP and, and confidential information and, and practices that need protection and so basically what I said about doing was recutting the yeah. team and building that expertise internally and then setting up the bridges between the teams in each country because we have an in-country team and and then bringing them together globally and then doing which I see, I see is your specialty actually establishing a panel. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a panel of advisors. We were still using the firm that BHP had given us when we demerged. And, you know, we we didn't have external providers who were fit for purpose either. And it's it's not because of any lack of recognition earlier than my arrival. It's just because the company wasn't at that point where it needed it or could afford it, frankly. Yeah. And so it was a fantastic opportunity to really recut everything and then set about really partnering with the business and doing something other than being seen to block yep. everything. And that's where the digital piece came in, you know, try and make things easier for people and trying to be seen as facilitators rather than people you want to avoid at all costs, which I think there was quite a bit of, frankly, earlier on. And also getting the lawyers to step up and see themselves as something other than post boxes. And, you know, I'd, I'd have conversations with them, guys, you know, a week ago, you were working across the road in that firm advising on this. Yep. Now that you're sitting in the chair here, why do you feel the need to go back there and ask them to do what you used to do? Why can't you do it? Yep. And it's about empowering them and pushing them, frankly. Bringing the team together, getting the external panel of firms right, getting the right skill set into and not being known as the department of no, if you like, becoming yeah. enablers and and the team taking ownership. A few years in now, I think you're four years into that role. How are you feeling about that? And is is there anything, if you had your time again, just in relation to those key priorities, you do a bit differently? How's it going? I I think it's going really well. We have really good engagement. We do a thing called the Pulse Survey every two years in the organisation. And the, the feedback of the team as a team is incredibly positive, particularly on the things that you want them to be positive about, like feeling good, being part of a, a, a bigger thing, 
you know, the allegiance and understanding and, and alliance with our bond and our purpose yep. and our corporate values was incredibly strong. And if we're not strong on that, how can you expect anyone yep. else to be? So that was really, really pleasing. And I think, you know, the team has, and, you know, we've, we've hit the, the metrics in terms of seeing, you know, the internal cost go up, not significantly, but enough that the external cost down. has come right. Yep. Just with time. Not just tighter management of the firms, but tighter management of the matters they handle and having that requisite level of knowledge on the other side, on the client side, to be able to manage things much more tightly and, and know what you're asking for, I think, and holding to account the people you use to make sure you get what you yeah. ask for. So the metrics are great. We've established a standalone ethics and compliance function, which has been hugely challenging, I have to say. I mean, it's a... As you can imagine, I think the Banking Royal Commission wiped out every ethics and yeah, compliance person. In Australia. So That's it's right. incredibly, incredibly hard to get these people. And, you know, very, it's a cultural change yeah. for people bringing these these functions into organisations. And it's a bit like the legal function. You've got, they've got to be seen to be adding value, to be partnering with you, to not be causing problems for you and to not be a reason to be scared of anything. And... You know, that, that's been grown organically over the last few years in, in a very difficult geographic footprint, I should say, where all the needs and the risks are very different. And that's been, a, I think, a, a, a really welcome addition to the team. What would I do? So I think, I think that bit of it I probably got right, and particularly introducing litigators into the team, you know, competition yep. specialists, and getting people who are aligned on a personal value that people feel yep. they can pick up the phone to that they will help from. So they're the things that I think have have gone according to plan. The bits that have been less, what would I have done differently? I think maybe understood better, and this is still a challenge for us, the career carving of junior lawyers and what their expectations are and how you make that work in an organisation which has much less opportunity on a yeah. you know a, a, a standard trajectory and that you are meeting their training and development requirements and you take that very seriously if you take them yeah. at a junior level. And I think probably because my number one, one of my mantras when I arrived was why do we have everyone with, you know, 15 years plus experience by definition should of doing, doing stuff yeah. they should not be doing. And let's bring in more junior people. And by doing that, you're giving the more senior people the opportunity to manage. You're growing people into the organisation and all the way down to paralegal level. I mean, we, we've just actually gone to one of the universities and asked for students who come from more difficult and diverse backgrounds who would you yep. know, benefit from the opportunity to, to work with a team like ours to learn to see how it happens in real life. And that's been fantastic for the team, you know, mentoring these people, working with them. And so that bit's been great, but I'm, I'm not sure we've got the balance right in how we really develop yeah. these people and move them through and also create opportunities for them in yeah. the broader business. I mean, we've had a couple who've been very successful and moved into broader roles within the business, but I'd like to see and, more and of think, that. Look, it's incredibly important, isn't it, in, in any business environment, creating career opportunities. And and no doubt, just given the nature of junior lawyers and the path they would have gone through, uh, high school, university, 
law firm. Mm. They're naturally kind of ambitious, career-driven, looking for exactly. improvement, so being able to create those kind of opportunities in-house. It's funny, when you say it out loud, it makes perfect sense. Of course, that's going to be a priority um, that they want to be seen to be, as we all do, um, progressing in our career and certainly learning. Boy, there's so much to talk about. Deborah, any myths about the role of a GC that you'd like to dispel? Yeah, I think there's probably a couple. One is, you know, to the extent that, it was ever regarded as just a post-box function whereby you get someone in to just direct yep. what work to law firms. Yep. You know, that, that does not happen anymore. And I think as a result of that, you're getting much better quality people moving into corporate roles and, and, and ending up in the, the GC role. I think the other myth is that um, yep. you're only going to be advising on law and you're not. I mean, you, you sort of... Um, the whole strategy piece, the for me, the ethics and compliance piece, the social license to operate piece, the overall strategic piece, the you know, even I mean we've got a lawyer sitting on our carbon and climate change team. I mean we're sort of expected yep. to, to have import and it might not necessarily be legal import to pretty much every aspect of the business. And I think that that's hugely exciting personally and I, I, I actually wouldn't have taken the role yeah. if it hadn't had those elements built into it because yeah I, the reality is I spend very on, little on, on time black level legal now. issues yeah it's in fact it's, it's been a theme over the last yeah. few weeks about the importance of um of judgment okay and and that the senior yes executive yeah. team that's what they're in the CEO that's what they're looking for I think that's right you know d- d- does this pass yeah. the pub test? How do you feel about it? What do you think we should do? You know, I, I report to the CEO and he sits in the office next door and and they're quite often the kind of conversations we have and yeah. I find them hugely interesting. And and I do think that's probably where that, in, you know, really diverse career background that I've had is really helpful because I actually have had to deal yeah. with a lot of sticky issues for better or for worse. And, and I think you just... That's the only thing that you can get with wisdom and experience. You just can't learn about that in some sort of development program. And that's why, you know, one of the things that I've been lamenting on, it'd be interesting to know what your view about this is, but this whole working from home kind of versus office versus half-half versus total flexibility, you know, what does it mean? And I think one of the things that you'll bet you being of a similar generation, unfortunately, will remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no need yeah. to apologise. <laughs> and we really got to show our age here. But, you know, you remember the articles here where you had to sit in the partner's office? And there was a reason for that. And that. There, there was. Watch, and, and look, right? uh, yeah, and so on. So unfortunately, there's no single answer that applies to everyone because I'd on the you know work from home or how many days in the office because I, I certainly remember those early years and how formative yeah. it was just to be able to sit and listen because you're in the yeah. same room as the partner. And they're just, you know, taking a phone call out of the blue, oh, that's how you ask a secretary to do something, oh, that's how you take instructions or, you know. Yeah. That's right. That's how you yeah. listen, okay. And so... Especially, you know, when you are more junior 
in your career, I am really worried about all of that learning yeah. by osmosis oh that, that you're going yeah. to miss. And I expect there's probably some people listening right now doing a bit of an eye roll, but it is having experienced it and lived through it and the value of it, it is, it is formative. It's irreplaceable too when you lose those early years because then you're going to be a fifth plus yeah. year or whatever it is. And there's just going to be an expectation level of what you're capable of doing. Mm. And yeah, so I, I think it's a really difficult problem. Yeah. And I think it, the impact on someone like you and I, Deborah, is very, very yeah. different to the impact on. And so, and so, so there isn't, I don't have a perfect answer. I'm worried about it though. But I do think, I, I think whatever the solutions are, they have to take into account those kind of yeah. factors um, because they are real and they can make a really significant And that's difference. how you learn about judgment. That's how you learn about managing conflict, interacting with others. I mean, you watch senior people and how they do it, right? Yep. Um, yep. So, so yeah. I have a 24-year-old upstairs whose first couple of months is with one of the big four consulting firms upstairs in his room yeah. on a laptop and I just think to myself, no. It's not how you learn, no, that, right? That's not how that, are A lot of these lawyers don't actually understand that value because they haven't seen it and all they see is a very flexible working arrangement which works really, really well for a whole lot of other reasons, right? Yep. And they're all compelling reasons too, but I just don't see how we can deliver on our commitment to develop these people unless yep. they're actually physically able to see some of what we do. Yep. And it's that judgment piece every time. Yeah. yeah, that's a tough one. Deborah, I've got some other questions. I think we've answered quite a few of them, but tell me, is there anything? I usually ask them, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? But you've given me <laughs> some really good <laughs> material on that. What have you spent too much time worrying about, which on reflection is not time well spent? Oh, planning everything. I'm a terrible planner. Oh. Shocking. Yeah. You, you mean you're an over planner by a terrible planner? Is yeah, that what yeah. You mean? You've got to plan yes, everything okay. to within an inch of its life. Like no room for any spot whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in Vietnam, you know, people, the staff would come in and the fortune teller would tell them Saturday was a great day for a wedding. And they'd come in on, on you know, Wednesday and say, oh, Miss Deborah, I'm getting married on Saturday. Can you come? I'm like, you're kidding me, bro. I've got my diary book for the next month. That's right. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm actually a shocking planner. And, and you know, every single thing that I've done in my career has been completely unplanned. Like there was never any end game. Yep. Yep. I think, you know, looking back, if I'd worried an awful lot less about what the next step looked like and just focused on the opportunity in front of me, yep. I would have spent a lot of less time worrying about rubbish. Yeah. It's funny. Again, it's a, it's a common theme. We don't hear too many people saying, that time I spent worrying, I'm, I'm glad I did that. That was... No. Uh, that was, no, not, not too many people saying that. And partner that. politics. I spent a lot of time. A lot of time. And, you know, it's like, yeah. who cares? Right? I tell you, there are, there'll be lots of listeners out there nodding their yeah. head at that one too. I yeah. reckon the partner politics doesn't really take you too far. No. I ask usually advice you'd give your 25-year-old self. I know one is don't spend so much time yeah, don't worrying. don't plan anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't plan anything. And clearly take opportunities, hard opportunities. Grab them. You know, even if you yep. scare the living daylights out of you, grab them. Vietnam was a very big ask for me. I wasn't good at doing things that were hard. And, yep. and I remember 
agonizing over that and what I should have done was just grabbed it and I did in the end and when I got there there was no but I tell you they couldn't get me up there unless they promised that if I didn't like it right yeah after three months or six months I could go back to exactly the same job and all that you know crap whereas in retrospect I should have just said god this is amazing go for it and and so I would say grab every opportunity you can get and the other thing I'd, I'd also say is you know don't underestimate the importance of it not just a mentor but you know they call them i think the word is sponsor you know someone who's yep. going to advocate for you and you know don't ever underestimate the value of those relationships or the amount of effort you need to put into them you know you don't get yep. anything for nothing and you can only make yourself valuable by making yourself invaluable and that takes work you know yep. and you know i've been lucky i've had some amazing people take charge of my career for me when I didn't even realise that was happening. Is that right? But I put in a lot at the other end, you know, to, to yeah. basically just become everyone's right-hand person when I was... I'd say one great bit of advice, which I give now, but I, I, I didn't receive or I didn't understand if someone had given it to me years ago, is make yourself indispensable yes. to someone, to a mentor or to someone yeah. who, who someone who's sees important mentor. and who has influence. That's right. Make yourself indispensable. Make their, whatever it takes, make their life yeah. as easy as possible. As you can. And what to the maximum extent that you can, personalise yeah. the relationship. Yeah. You know, develop what it is you have in common. Talk about something other than work occasionally understand yep. what their life looks like outside of work you know all those things it just makes it so much more rewarding and yep. it enables you to make yourself invaluable deborah you've got 15 year old boy twins mm-hmm. a challenge of course but tell yep. me what 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 are the attributes or characteristics you're hoping they will grow up with or grow into let's say i've always told them when we've had discussions around choosing partners because, you know, it's a very kind of appearance-obsessed society with Instagram yep. and everything that goes with it these days. And I've always sort of said to them, guys, you know, the three things you need to focus on are people who are smart, funny, and kind. And I don't mean smart as in, a, you know, an intellect intellectual, intellectual, yep. but someone who is smart about the way they do things and smart yep. about the decisions they make. And and funny and kind are what are going to get you through, right? Yeah. And, and I'd like them to be smart, funny and kind, you know, smart about their decisions. Yep. They're actually very entertaining. And as a pair, you know, you always get that bounce effect. Oh, so good. The funny they've figured out. Yep. Um, yep. And the kind, you know, particularly with it, what everyone's going through is critical. And so, you know, anything that I see or that I'm involved in that involves people who have a life different to theirs, I make sure they understand that I'm doing it and why. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, and I think this is getting harder and harder to demonstrate, just the value of sheer hard work, even yeah. if you don't want to be doing it, right? I mean, I've got one who hates maths and, and, you know, he says, I hate it, I just hate it. And I've said to him, well, you know, they're both going to do the IB because they're bilingual French speakers. And I've said, well, if you're going to do the IB, you don't have a choice, you know. Got to stick it out. Yep, suck it up and stick it out. And at the moment, I'm sitting through a virtual trial, which is going to run for six weeks, and and they wander in and out occasionally and have a look at the witnesses giving evidence and stuff, and they find it all quite intriguing. But, you know, they do say, are you going to do that for six weeks? I'm like, yeah, Yeah. that's 
you know, I don't do stuff that I love all the time either. Don't think you ever get to a point where every day you absolutely love everything yep. you do. Some of it is just sheer hard work, but you've got to find the balance that makes it worthwhile. You know, whatever it is, the people you work with, the challenge that you, you get out of it, the money you get paid, whatever yep. it is that drives you, you know, it's about getting the balance right. Deborah Council, it's been fantastic reconnecting with you. It has been, Jim. Thank you for having me. An absolute blast. Thank you very much. Anytime. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit.com. P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.